Hello, and welcome to another episode of LiveWire's Rules of Investing. I'm your host and editor at LiveWire, Patrick Polk. Today, we've got a very special guest, Alex Weislitz, founder of Thorny Investments Group. Alex is one of the most successful investors in this country, having achieved consistent double-digit returns over more than two decades. These incredible long-run returns have landed him a spot on the AFR Rich List, where this year he was called Australia's Warren Buffett, though it's a label he's quick to dismiss. In the full interview, we discuss the importance of investing in the right people, six reasons to walk away from a potential investment, and the most important lesson that he learned working for Australia's first billionaire, Robert Holmes Accord. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at Livewire Markets, and visit our website, livewiremarkets.com. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the show. I'm really looking forward to delving into your investment process today so we can get an understanding of what makes you and, of course, Thorny more broadly tick. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it as well. Cool. Well, let's, let's jump straight into the questions. Um, there was a recent AFR article which uh, the numbers in it seem to suggest that you, over the last 25, 30 years, had achieved returns somewhere in the ballpark of around 30% per annum. Um, so first of all, is that number in the right ballpark or what would be the uh, right one? Well, to be honest, actually, I don't really calculate it. Uh, I know certainly in the early years we had uh, 100% type of returns uh, for the first uh, several years and um, that gave us a good base in terms of uh, what you might be referring to. More recently, I think our returns have been in the sort of ballpark 20% kind of returns the last few years. So. On average, you might be closer to, to right, uh, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. So I don't really bother about looking backwards. I look forward. Well, what do you think it is? Even at 20%, that's still significantly different to what more traditional you know, fund managers, and we'll talk about the fund managers versus investors later. Um, but what do you think it is about your process that's allowed you to achieve such incredible returns? I think it's... Uh a, a very sort of determined uh, effort to succeed. Uh, I have my own money at stake and uh, certainly when I started off I didn't have very much capital so I had to make every post a winner. Um, so it was relentless hard work and focus and concentration and I've tried to um, instill in the team and uh, continue with myself to pursue those type of um, aspirational objectives and um, I think that's what's what what drives sort of the uh, performance, I suppose, and uh, try not to tolerate uh, uh, modest outcomes, but try to strive for uh, greater outcomes to the work that's associated with it. Okay, great. Well, I mean, despite these obviously quite strong returns, I suspect a lot of investors wouldn't actually be all that familiar with your firm up until relatively recently you kept a very low profile. Um, so I'd like to get a bit of an understanding of your investment philosophy and what, what makes you tick. So what are the first things that you look at when you're assessing a new opportunity? What are your, you know, the, the hurdles you have to jump over before you, you even start? I think uh, this probably goes into subjective 
case and a an, uh, more objective case. In terms of the subjective, very much the early thing we look at, perhaps the first thing we look at is the people who are at the helm of the company that's being proposed to invest in. Um, at the board level, at the CEO level, CFO and other key executives. Um, uh, have they got their own money invested alongside us? Uh, where have they come from and how have they got to this point? Uh, what is their dream? What is their sort of vision for the company? Can we see them achieving that over the next two, three, four years? Um, will they work hard enough to it? Are they, uh, are they um, indulgent in their expenses? Um, do they drive fancy cars and have fancy offices or are they very uh, much more focused on uh, the value of cash and protecting the cash. So we kind of try to look at uh, uh, those subjective elements or those um, elements around the psychology of the people who are running the organization. If we feel they've got the characteristics, the leadership qualities, the work ethic, the culture uh, that sets the organization um, up correctly for success, then that's a big tick for us. And uh, conversely, if they don't, then we often just don't go past that point uh, at all. Uh, the second side uh, is the more objective um, and analytics of the, of the numbers and the uh, financial performance historically, what we think it can go forward to. And then around that is uh, always paramount in our mind is to buy what we think is a value entry point. Uh, I've always believed in buying well is a recipe for success. It gives you a chance to have not only modest success but superior um, outcomes if you're buying from a good base. If you're paying too high up front then obviously inevitably some things go wrong with companies and you don't leave yourself a buffer zone and then you're under pressure as an investor uh, fairly uh, easily. So if the price, the entry price is uh, not attractive, then we will walk away. Uh, or perhaps just have a very modest investment, wait for something to go wrong, um, and uh, then step in if it does uh, fall down to a more attractive entry point. But value is very uh, much forefront in our mind. Well, you said before that the uh, assessing the, the management and that the people are really important. So I'd like to get a bit of detail, I guess, on, on how you do that. So could you share with us maybe one or two questions that you would ask a CEO or a managing director uh, when you, when you're of a potential investment when you're meeting with them for the first time? Well, well first of all, what we won't do is just uh, make an investment uh, based on what a broker or intermediary will just recommend to us. We want to actually go and put the time and effort into meeting the key people at the company. Um, when we'll talk to them, we will say exactly what I sort of alluded to before. How did you get to this point um, that you're coming now to raise investment dollars? What, uh, or, or if we've identified the company and go to them, they may not be looking for money, but we'll talk to them and say, what, 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 what got you to this point in time? And, and really understanding the steps, perhaps the pain, uh, perhaps the battles that they've had to go through and see uh, uh, what, what kind of they've been made of to get to this point because they may have gone through some ups and downs and that's fine and if they've worked their way through problems they, we may have had examples of how they pivoted the business to get to where they are 
Um, they may have had to make some tough decisions on the way and how did they go in those decision making uh, the process internally. Um, have the team, the leadership team stuck together for a while so you've got a lot of experience there and capability. We'll try to understand that about where they are and we'll ask them all the questions relating to that. And then, uh, as I said, uh, really what is the dream from here? And why will they be successful in achieving that? And we just want them to, um, to verbalize that. And in verbalizing it, we will see their passion will come out in their language, um, body language, uh, in their oral language, uh, supported by other members of the team that we want to have either there or meet separately to uh, see if we get a consistent message. Um, see if the strategy makes sense in that regard and their steps or the tactics uh, behind the strategy uh, or as part of the strategy also makes sense in getting there and then try to get a sense from them that they understand what the financial commitment of achieving that three-year or four-year or five-year vision is, um, how much capex they might need, working capital, etc. How do they position for that? So really trying to spend time with the leaders, getting them to expand uh, the vision as well as understanding from the past journey they've had, really gives us good insights into what we think they're capable of. So the, the struggles that they faced in the past, is it fair to say that you would actually see that as being a positive attribute that they've, that they've faced challenges in, in the, the past in their business? Well, it could well be, depending obviously on the individual circumstances, but we do like to have people who are, I suppose, battle-hardened and who are experienced with uh, life always not going the way you planned it. Uh, there's, uh, you know, competitors may emerge, uh, other, other global economic crisis, uh, how have they positioned themselves, were they over leveraged, you know, did they build a buffer zone in the business that enabled them to survive no matter what kind of happened. Um, and uh, we believe certainly in second chances and if people have got through that, uh, that that's fine, that could be a, a strength and, um, and, and, and of course, you know, now we're seeing a lot of technology, new young uh, entrepreneurs coming up. Uh, the one thing that many of them haven't had is uh, hardened battle experience. They've got enthusiastic um, approach to life and that's great. They've got a can-do attitude, which is great. They've got a conquer the world attitude, which is great as well. And they've obviously, a lot of them intelligent and driven, but they haven't had a lot of experience and we like a balance of both, or if it's a young company, maybe they should have some, have some experience at the board to balance out the equation, uh, and so on. So we'll try and get a real feel for all of that. Just discussing one of the, uh, the specifics of one of the investments that you're in, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit maybe about how you see that in Afterpay. I know Nick is quite a, a young CEO. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% on top of their full board structure, but I was wondering if you could just put it in, in that well, practical I, I example think, for uh, us. I think Afterpay is a, is a terrific example of, uh, of that really, because you've got a very uh, young, motivated, energetic uh, um, Nick Moller, who's uh, at the helm of the operating side of the business, uh, understands the technology, understands the platform needs to be built, understands the scale of the opportunity, and is a hardworking individual, um, and that's great. But uh, as well as that, uh, I think his title is chairman, you've got Anthony Eisen, um, who is a very battle-hardened executive, even though he's still relatively young. 
He's spent many years in the uh, Ron Briley, Gary Weiss uh, GPG camp, uh, been involved in many, many transactions across many industries um, and through the ups and downs of uh, cycles, um, uh, corporate maneuverings, capital raisings, uh, asset sales, asset stripping, um, selling off divisions. Uh, is probably yeah, as experienced as anyone else his age and uh, that is a great uh, um, team and around that they've also got a lot of other strength on the board as well so that's a good example of a company that's actually taken the best of both merged it and then you can see the outcome uh, has been great success well let's look at the i guess at the other side of it i'm interested in what would make you turn down an investment? You know, I've, I've heard people say that, especially in small cap land, you make as much money from what you don't invest in as you do from what you do invest in. So what would be some of the reasons that you would consider turning down an otherwise uh, positive looking investment? Well, uh, I, I use that expression myself, that we've made uh, a lot of money by not being in investments. And um, you don't always obviously get it right and there's some that slip through your fingers that you should have done. But uh, we have a pretty good track record of filtering out uh, companies that have faltered. Um, well, it goes back to those first two basic things I mentioned. Are the people uh, of quality enough with the right uh, experience and talent to drive the organisation? And uh, if they're not, then we will walk away. Uh, if they're a bit too much on the promotion side rather than the business operation, uh, we will walk away. Uh, if the financial metrics don't stand up and we're not uh, buying at value, we will walk away. Uh, if, the, um, uh, the, if it's a kind of a hockey stick earnings profile, uh, we will usually walk away unless we've got a very high conviction for a good reason why we think that's possible. Uh, but generally we will walk away if it's, uh, uh, you know, if it's, uh, there's an expression, if it's too good to be true, it's probably not real. Um, and we may not choose to take that risk on, or we might only have a modest investment and then just use that as an opportunity to watch the progress and maybe buy in later. Uh, those are, you know, depending on the um, uh, uniqueness of the opportunity, uh, if, it, if it is just uh, also around one of many in the pack, uh, we'll probably walk away. Uh, if the competitive landscape is very uh, robust, uh, we might walk away, because how will they protect themselves? Or as Warren Buffett would say, what is the moat around this business? If we can't see a genuine moat uh, then uh, we'll often walk away unless it's got other characteristics that says uh, that will overcome that, that barrier for us. So, so those are some of the reasons we might uh, uh, discard an op uh, investment opportunity. Let's get into a little bit of, uh, of a story. I, I noticed when I was looking at Thorny Opportunities that there was, there was a bit of what seemed to be unusual uh, start to life there. So Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I understand Australian Renewable Fuels bid to take over Wentworth Holdings, and then your private company, which was a substantial holder uh, of Wentworth, 
then bid on that bid on No, that I think that, that's not quite right. No? Uh, this came out of um, Wentworth Holdings. Um, Thorny Technologies came out of Australian um, Renewables. That, um, I think, uh, so there's two different LICs uh, that we run. One is called Thorny Opportunities, yeah. uh, which is a sort of a value and a constructivist kind of um, pool of capital. And then we have Thorny Technologies, which is, uh, as, as the title suggests, they're focused on um, technology investment. So Wentworth was uh, uh, a company whose focus was on accumulating uh, rent rolls, property rent, real estate uh, rent rolls, and some other real estate uh, assets. Um, it had a kind of a failed execution strategy around that, and under we were a small shareholder, relatively small shareholder at the time, and under duress from um, some of the other larger shareholders, uh, the company decided eventually to unwind those assets and to move to um, liquidate them. Whilst they were doing that, we uh, tended to notice that, the, in our view, the shares were trading at a, uh, at a, at a price that was below the uh, net tangible assets. So uh, we thought that was a, a market opportunity, as I expressed before, of buying well and continued to um, uh, accumulate a holding ourselves uh, up until the point where we realized as the, um, as the assets were being liquidated and they were actually moving towards some cash position that confirmed our view that it was cheap relative to NTA or likely NTA. Um, and we found ourselves in, uh, with a larger shareholding at that point and in a position to consider um, what might be the future of this company in a different format. And that eventually morphed into creating a listed investment company, which we rebranded Thorny Opportunities. It, the whole kind of situation somewhat reminded me of, uh, of Berkshire back when it was still a, a textiles mill and Buffett partnership taking a stake in that and eventually taking over the whole company. And of course he turned it into an operating company rather than a listed investment company. Um, but it just, uh, I thought it was interesting the, the kind of, at least at the surface level, the parallels there. Yeah, well, I think uh, we, we, we have a wide mandate actually that was given to us at the time when we, when we raised uh, further funds in Thorny Opportunities to invest uh, in listed or in unlisted for that matter. There's nothing stopping us in the future in actually uh, buying a shareholding or indeed 100% of a operating company. And we're open to consider that if we find the right opportunity. Um, we have had uh, experience and we have lots of people that we know experience in running operating companies. And if that makes sense, if we can buy it and we have uh, the appropriate experience for that particular opportunity, we might consider it. Um, and that will give us uh, hopefully um, sort of cash flow or on that business to upstream to increase maybe dividends. But we haven't done that to date. At, at the moment, what we've done is taken some strategic uh, 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 investments uh, through Thorny Opportunities uh, in, in a handful of companies. And uh, so far, uh, it's worked out pretty, pretty well in the three years that we've been uh, running it. And um, uh, although, unfortunately, at this point in time, the shares are trading below the NTA. Uh, so maybe it's Wentworth over again in a different format. <laughs> 
Do you have a plan for closing that gap to NTA? Uh, yes, I think uh, what we're learning is that we probably have to um, communicate more with our investor, investor base, uh, shareholders and the, and the wider market to tell our story and give the narrative behind what the investments are. Um, I think at the moment we're probably uh, uh, lacking a bit of news flow in the sense that uh, we're sticking with a few of the major investments we've got in there. Uh, and so we haven't had a lot of new investment stories. Um, but I'm very comfortable with that because we're happy with the quality of the companies that make up the bulk of the portfolio. They're performing very well. In fact, I think the, the top three companies all had record uh, results in the last uh, 12 months or, or indeed six months. Um, and again, you reference Warren Buffett. Now, Warren Buffett would say, stick to the companies that are performing well. I mean, just think about it. If you have a good leadership that I was talking about before at the board and the executive level, if you have a good strategy, it's well articulated, it's understood by the executives and the market, uh, if you're performing financially well and delivering in that strategy and executing well with a quality management team, and they're delivering results, why would you change uh, if there's still upside? It is very hard to put all those elements together. And when you get them, as Warren Buffett says, it's rare and stick with it um, until such time as some of those dynamics may change. So the main three companies we have uh, in there, which is uh, ServiceStream, uh, Money3, uh, AMA, uh, are all in exactly that position. So we don't need to change, they're performing and they will continue to deliver us uh, the returns that, uh, that we're proud of. Well, that actually kind of leads naturally into, <laughs> into my next question, which was um, about concentration. When I was looking at, on the announcements on the ASX, I could see uh, from the substantial shareholder notice that uh, Money3 was the example that I looked at, uh, that Thorny as a group owns quite a large chunk of, 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 that, uh, of that company. So I know you don't publish your individual position sizes for, the, uh, for Thorny Opportunities, but what, how do you think about concentration and diversification and how do you think it's different from traditional fund managers? Well, I can answer that uh, quite readily and we in fact um uh, talked about this at the time we arranged, uh, raised the initial money for Thorny Opportunities and sought the mandate from the investment community. We did say at the time um, that we are prepared for periods of time in the portfolio construct going forward that we would have overweight positions. And it's for exactly the same reasons I outlined. If a company is going well, if its strategy is right, if its management is performing, and we can still see the performance scenario going forward for uh, uh, many years, uh, we don't need to change. In fact, we'll, we'll, we'll stay with it and we'll continue to get close to the company, uh, monitor it uh, well. We will have the intellectual capital already sunk into that, and so we will be working off a good knowledge base um, and uh, we will be pushing the company as we do in terms of dialogue for how to keep improving the shareholder performance. So we will, we will, uh, we will are very comfortable in that position. And I think that's 
And we said that at right at the time of seeking the mandate, it will differentiate ourselves from most of the portfolio managers that are out there or the professional fund managers. They are very much benchmark focused and uh, uh, live their life by, by, by uh, you know, slightly overperforming, hopefully, the benchmark and not underperforming the benchmark, otherwise they run the risk of redemptions. Um, and we're not so much focused on that. We're focused, again, on absolute return over the mid to long term. And uh, we are happy to concentrate our firepower, our resources, human resources on staying on top of a position and work closely with it. So we don't have a problem with that. We, we understand the risk of that company. Hopefully we've done our work. And, uh, and indeed, many of those concentrated positions throughout the history of Thorny, the wider group, has led uh, to our shareholding being the basis of another company coming in and mounting a takeover bid. So we've actually been able to deliver a key um, shareholding stake to enable a takeover to succeed. So that is sort of the flip side also of a concentrated position and, and that's happened many times for us in, the, uh, in our history of 25 years. So we're, we're fine with that. Yeah, noticeably absent from your uh, your monthly announcements was any discussion of tracking error, which was nice to see. <laughs> it's always amazed me that um, that for some fund managers it can actually be a problem outperforming if they're outperform too much, if they look too different from the from the index. I I can't understand why anybody would be concerned about about tracking error when it's in the right direction. Yes, no, I can't understand that. And the other point that I, you know I'd like to re-emphasise is. Uh, I own approximately 30% uh, uh, of Thorny Opportunities, so um, uh, I'm very comfortable myself with those concentrated positions and I don't feel the need to uh, dilute that unless it's for the right economic value. Um, and uh, So we will continue to have concentrated position if it makes sense to. Let's go back in time a little bit, at least figuratively. Now, some of our younger listeners may not have heard of uh, Robert Holmes Acourt, but he was actually uh, Australia's first billionaire. And I understand you worked with him in the late 80s, is that right? Yeah. So I was wondering if you could tell us uh, what was it that made you really want to work with him specifically, first of all? Well, I, uh, at that stage, I was a, a pretty young guy living in New York, and uh, I noticed that uh, Holmes Accord uh, was diversifying himself from his investment base in Australia to some international investment opportunities, had established an office in London and had actually uh, uh, made some strategic investments uh, there, including some uh, takeovers. So he seemed to me to be a very dynamic, uh, extremely uh, clever, uh, aggressive in individual uh, who was starting to make his mark on the world stage. Um, and with the Australian connection, I thought, oh, that would be a uh, unique opportunity to be able to reach out and try to um, uh, work with someone like that. So uh, I approached him through a cold call letter and uh, um, persisted and persisted until finally he responded to me and uh, eventually got to meet uh, the head of his international um, operation. It was based out of London. He came through New York. I met him. and. Uh, for me, it was an amazing opportunity because I got offered a chance to work for him and uh, co-open his New York office. And um, very fortunate for me uh, was that he was a bit of a night owl in Australia, so he would call me 
quite often and uh, coached me and instruct me and give me, really gave me a fantastic opportunity. And I think I worked with him for some four odd years and uh, we went, I think, from having about $10 million invested in the US when the time that, um, that, we, that I started there to over a billion dollars in the course of about 18 months or thereabouts. So it was uh, tremendously exciting, tremendously um, uh, dynamic work uh, workspace. And I was fortunate enough to be able to come back to Australia to work on um, uh, BHP deal that he mounted through a vehicle called Wigmores. And uh, ironically, it was actually in this uh, same building that we're sitting in here today that, uh, that uh, I was uh, working in for him and had some work in Perth as well as in London. So for me as a young guy in my 20s, it was a fantastic opportunity to work with a formidable individual uh, on a sort of global basis. So it was terrific. Uh, that sounds really interesting. I was wondering if you could actually, uh, if you'd mind sharing one of the key investment lessons that you, you learned working with him. Uh, I learned from him to look for hidden value that others may have overlooked. So often on a company's balance sheet was written down land values that may have been bought many, many years ago. It could be industrial land or something like that from a manufacturing operation. It could be a brand that was uh, underexploited but was fully owned by the company. So he was a master at identifying value that others seemed to disregard or not put a, not put a big uh, amount of focus on. Um, so I'm always looking for the jewels. What is there in the company that uh, hasn't been noticed or picked up? Maybe a division, maybe a hidden asset, it may be a technology that's patented or something like that. Uh, uh, maybe a subsidiary that's got some old assets from years and years ago. Uh, and you think that it's all been picked over, you think it's all been analysed and you think that there's nothing there to be discovered, but he taught me that in fact there is many things that are undiscovered or not paid attention to. He also um, uh, liked to invest in companies that he thought had uh, lazy or idle or not focused leadership. And the reason for that is he thought, well, that's where he should be an activist and to change that dynamic could change the performance of the company, uh, even on the same assets that they had there. So um, that was another thing that I think I learned uh, from him to, to keep our eye on. So many people will walk away from those type of uh, companies, but we will look at them as well and then try to instill the right leadership in them. Again, talking about leadership being so key for the future. Do you think that anything has changed since the 80s in terms of how many undiscovered companies there are out there? I think there's a perception in the market today that it was easier to find these kind of, you know, these undiscovered gems once upon a time. Do you think it's different now or are they still out there and just people aren't, aren't finding them? I think uh, they are out there. I don't think that the opportunities have disappeared. Uh, we continue to uncover companies that uh, institutions have not invested in or um, maybe too early for them to look at or probably the real truth is um, uh, that they're not um, spoon-fed to institutional investors because the brokers are not aware of them. There may be the mid-size or small companies that analysts are not covering. And if we do our own legwork and travel around and... Um, talk uh, 
to people, we will stumble on these companies and that's what we continue to do. Most recently we've invested in a company called Zenith Energy out of Perth, uh, which was uh, a relatively unknown company focused on uh, delivering uh, energy and power solutions to remote areas such as mining sites. Um, it's a great thematic, as we know, energy is a big problem uh, in Australia. Getting access to reliable energy at a reasonable cost uh, is one of the major political um, uh, topics. And this company uh, is doing it. Now, um, uh, since we've uh, entered the share register, I think the shares are up some 20 or 30 percent, relatively short order, because what's happened is we've invested it We've talked about it, suddenly people are looking at it and discovering this company has uh, got a very attractive proposition. Uh, but why did we find it and other investors didn't find it? Um, uh, well, I can't tell you all of that, otherwise we may not be able to do it in the future. But the point is that there are opportunities out there, I think, every day uh, in good markets and in bad markets. So I don't agree that it's uh, 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 was easier in the old days than it is today. In fact, there are many more companies listed on the exchange today than at any other time, I think, uh, certainly in Australia. Um, so I think there are plenty of opportunities. You just have to go and do uh, the work. Okay. Well, look, I'd love to talk about books for a bit. I love, love reading books, uh, whether they're about investing directly or just ancillary topics that, that might help us as, as investors. So I was wondering if you could tell us what your favourite investing book is and could you share one or two of the key lessons from it? Sure. I don't read a lot actually of investment books. I read more about some of the individual investors uh, and their stories and uh, their journey. Uh, but one book that I did reach, uh, re read recently was Ray Dalio's uh, uh, book from uh, late last year, I think, called uh, Principles. Uh, and I think um, that, I think it's a New York bestseller, actually. Um, and he's obviously a, a, for, uh, you know, a very successful investor for many, many years and built a huge organization. Um, but what, what uh, struck me out of that book is something that uh, I hope that you know, I uh, instill in the Thorny team and myself, it really is uh, about how much of investing just gets down to common sense. And um, propositions that company are putting forward for their business and their future, um, is it reasonable? Is it sensible? Can they go from step one to step two to step three? Uh, have they um, taken on too much debt? What type of risk profile have they put into a business? So uh, he talks about a sort of a common sense approach, not only to investing, but in terms of also in life. Uh, a work-life balance uh, is a very healthy outlook for longevity in this business. And I always say that, um, you know, Thorny, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint, you know, um, because uh, you, can, you, can, you don't want to be a one-hit wonder. You want to have consistent returns for many, many years and then you'll have a great journey and uh, you'll enjoy what you're doing and you'll be successful. So I very much try to encourage the team at Thorny, uh, the investment managers, to have a balanced life. Um, I believe in sort of family values and spending time there, but also focus on your work and that should be a, a great priority as well. And I think that's what came out of that book uh, as, as, as well as, uh, obviously there's a lot of technical issues there, but the main thing is common sense. Investing is common sense. It is not a magical Harry Potter type of uh, world that we're entering in. 
Uh, it's uh, both subjective and objective, uh, but common sense is a big part of it. Awesome. Well, one of our key objectives with the podcast is to try and teach the audience something that they hadn't thought about. I was wondering, would you, would you be able to share a, a risk, a strategy, or a cognitive bias, or an opportunity that you think investors aren't really thinking about right now? Yes, well, I think that's important to do, and um, I'll, I'll refer to something I learned when I, when I was at the Harvard Business School doing a course there. Um, one of the analogies that one of the professors gave to me sticks in my mind, and uh, it refers to risk and the tolerance for risk that everybody needs to think about before they make any investment or before they create an investment portfolio. So what he said is imagine yourself on a branch of a tree. The closer you are to the trunk or indeed hugging the trunk, obviously the safer you are. And maybe that represents in investment worlds buying a, a bank bill or a government bond or something like that. But then he said step away from the trunk further out on the branch and further again and further again until you're on the end. Now when you're on the end and the branch is swaying and you could fall or it could break, that is a high risk proposition. That maybe is your biotech stocks or your, uh, or your other technology stocks that have no um, revenue, uh, are burning cash, etc. Now everybody needs to work out how far along the branch they're comfortable in their investment and in their life and what can make them sleep at night comfortably. So um, I think uh, um, every individual in thinking about investing, whether it's from your house to a share market portfolio or other asset classes, uh, should picture themselves on that branch and say, okay, I'm comfortable here, but I'm not comfortable here. And, uh, and then once you get that clear in your mind, you can work out how to construct your, your asset pool. Uh, and then I think you'll be a lot more um, uh, successful as an investor and you'll uh, also be more comfortable uh, as an individual. So I think the, lear the learning from me is for people to think about risk, downside risk. Most people are optimists and they'll, uh, they'll err in their thinking that this is gonna all work out well and unfortunately life is not that sweet and often the other side occurs and you have to be able to work out in advance what your tolerance is for when something goes wrong and if you haven't worked it out then you'll be caught out and you'll be under a lot of stress. Yeah definitely not something you can do in hindsight. <laughs> um, if you could go back in time to when you were finishing say school or university and give yourself just one piece of investing advice what would it be? I would say to get into the markets, be it property or, um, or shares, uh, as early as you can and actually touch and feel the experience. Um, once you're engaged in doing it and you've got a few dollars into the market with some friends or on your own, um, then suddenly you're actively discussing it, you're reading about it, you're talking to people, you're learning with every discussion and your feeling and your understanding, your tolerance for risk, your excitement for success, and you're learning the lessons early on. The earlier you learn these lessons, I think the better investor you'll be over, over your life and the more successful. 
So um, my advice would be to get started earlier, read about it, do a stock exchange course if that's what you're interested in, or a real estate course, uh, go to auctions, invest in the share market, uh, but actually uh, live it and experience it. Well, this one's supposed to be a little bit of a fun one. I always like to say, uh, don't try this at home. Uh, we're not actually suggesting that investors go out and buy, put all of their money into a single stock here. Um, but given that, um, if the market was going to close for five years starting tomorrow, and, um, and hypothetically you could only own shares in a single company, what would the company be? Well, first of all, I'm an entrepreneur, so if one market was closed, I'd find another market to, uh, to open and trade in. But uh, look, I think uh, if I could reference back that uh, example I gave you about your risk tolerance and standing on the trunk. Um, if your risk tolerance is low, I would go for a good quality company that's generating cash, paying dividends, and still got growth. So maybe uh, in our universe in Australia, a company like a Service Stream, a Money3, a Monodelphus, terrific management team, uh, good thematics they're involved in, and a proven ability to perform, and returning sh uh, shareholder um, uh, money through dividends, as well as capital growth. If, on the other hand, you want to be right at the end of the, uh, the branch and you're prepared to go all in for a risk, I would go for a company uh, in the medical technology, probably, space, a company like Mesoblast, uh, which is in a leading player in the stem cell technology, or Aventus, which is a, uh, a device to deal with the sleep apnea and snoring, which is a major worldwide uh, problem. Both of them global market opportunities and you'd go, go all in and see if they could uh, crack the code and uh, actually be a, uh, a great Australian successful export story, which I think they can be. Um, so it depends on which, where, where you're comfortable there again. Uh, and the reason I, I, made, I put it in that perspective is because I want your listeners to really think about risk, risk mitigation and risk tolerance. And if they get that understanding early on and they appreciate it, then they'll be much better and more successful investors. I don't think we can top that, so we'll use that as a note to finish on. Alex, thanks for taking the time to sit down with us today. Uh, it's been great to hear some insights into how you and Thorny think. Okay, thanks very much, and uh, it was great fun being here. Well, that's it for another episode of The Rules of Investing. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, we'll be coming out via video with a new CIO profile featuring Simon Marwini from Alan Gray and hosted by Livewire co-founder James Marley. It should be a great interview, so make sure you sign up for our emails to avoid missing out. In the meantime, please subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at Livewire Markets, and visit our website, livewiremarkets.com. For Android users, Google just released a new podcast app which is a great way of staying up to date with the rules of investing. And as always, thanks for listening.